It's time for the morning brief where we bring in our first pundit of the day on Wednesdays. Preet Banerjee is here, the actual Preet Banerjee, not the AI <laughs> Preet Banerjee. Nice to have you. Good morning, Joan. Okay, maybe I'm the only person who's amused by the fact they got to call a meeting to figure out what to do about a solar eclipse, but they're doing that <laughs> at the Toronto District School Board today. No, I love it. Listen, I think it's a recipe for disaster if they don't make the change. The The timing of this eclipse could be right around when the kids are getting out of school and would be outside and very tempted to look into the sky. And I have a feeling that there's going to be a social media challenge created, such as how long can you stare at the sun and put that on TikTok? And that's all you need for, you know, thousands of kids to go blind. Auto insurance rates expected to go up this year, um, perhaps not surprising. I mean, we've been talking about auto theft nonstop for the last couple of years. Yeah, and I was blown away to learn that 80,000 vehicles were stolen last year across Canada. I knew it was in the thousand. I didn't think it was 80,000. Wow. That is a huge number. And insurance is a risk pooling game. And what that means is... As the costs to the insurer goes up because there are more cars to pay for for replacements, the average cost per policy goes up because you're all sharing in the risk, hoping that it doesn't happen to you. But if it does, that you're covered. That's the way insurance works. So with an increase in thefts, you can be sure that there's going to be an increase in premiums. And it sounds like this will continue for some time because the rate of you know the increase has not really slowed down. Well, and it's why I'm very happy that police forces have made this a priority, because you're right. We're all, you know, maybe your car doesn't get stolen, but you're still going to end up paying $50, $100, $200 more on your insurance this year. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen, I think many people have seen the videos out of San Francisco where the sheer number of vehicles being stolen is so much that the response by authorities is, listen, it's going to happen. You know, you can be anywhere. It could happen broad daylight. No one's going to do anything. Just let it happen. File your claim. And there's a huge backlog. And so left unchecked, uh, what that turns into is a much bigger insurance premium for everybody. I was mentioning going into the break, this business of Manulife and Loblaw, actually shoppers making a deal uh, about pharmaceutical drugs. And I'm still trying to digest exactly what the consequences of this are. But perhaps you can explain. Yeah, it, you know, my initial response is that uh, from what I've seen, it certainly riled up the independent pharmacists, as you would imagine, sure. because, you know, they're being shut out of a, you know, a potentially healthy part of the market for you know dispensing prescription drugs. And, you know, I think... As you get older, uh, I think you are much more likely to build a relationship with a pharmacist who knows about the other drugs that you're taking. And so, you know, for people who are maybe younger or aren't picking up prescription drugs on a regular basis, you might say, well, who cares about this? This is better for competition, at least to lower prices. But, you know, if you are someone who has a relationship with your pharmacist and then all of a sudden to get these new drugs that you need because of some new condition, you have to go somewhere else that other pharmacist may not necessarily have the whole picture or the same kind of relationship that you would want for, you know, someone in the healthcare system dealing with you. And I kind of like this one independent pharmacist idea was that, you know, maybe just offer the drugs through any pharmacy. And if the independents want to dispense at the cost that they're offered, they can choose to or not. So if it's not viable for them, they can say, at least we had the choice to say no. But as it stands right now, you know, does this lead to a shutting out of independence and dwindling of competition in the marketplace and just leading to, you know, an oligopoly? 
What do you make of this story? Uh, Go train operators told that if they are involved in an incident where they have struck a person, they have to stay in the cab and just, you know, I guess, wait for emergency responders. And I guess there are arguments as to why that actually might be more compassionate, but they say it's it's a raw deal. Yeah, and I, I wonder if maybe just the wording of this policy as it's stated is maybe too restrictive. You know, if there was a policy that maybe suggested, hey, you don't have to leave the train if you don't want to. No one expects you to do that because you've just been traumatized. We get it. But hey, if you feel you are capable and you want to try and help, we're not going to say you're not allowed to because that might be traumatizing to someone who's saying, listen, I'm told I'm not allowed to leave the train, even though I feel that I'm capable of doing it. This person clearly, you know, seconds count. I can make maybe make a difference. That would be more traumatizing to say, no, I'm told I'm not allowed to do anything. So giving them the option, but the expectation is you don't have to. And I understand, you know, if you're in a train and you hit someone, of course that's traumatic. But the other side of the story is the reports from uh, some workers who identities were hidden for, uh, you know, privacy reasons and, and fear of retribution. But they're saying, you know, we used to get seven days off, you know, if we had an incident, that's been reduced to three. And they're saying that they're not getting adequate mental health support. So I think someone needs to be maybe doing internally or externally just to maybe ask a few questions to see if these policies are appropriate. Yeah, I've certainly been told in the past that for TTC operators, subway drivers, being involved in, for example, a suicide, I mean, it's life altering. It's not about needing a week off and the rest of your life is you know, tainted by that. Yeah. And so it seems like this policy seems to be going in the other direction. And I think the, the criticism from, you know, from the employees is that this middle manager who's managing these contracts with the drivers, they're saying this is cost cutting and it's coming at the expense of mental health. Uh, let's talk about this window of opportunity opening for first time home buyers. That's totally in your wheelhouse as a personal finance commentator. Yes, yeah, smallest window on earth. Um, because, <laughs> okay. you know, if you're a well-heeled buyer, maybe. Uh, but, you know, keep in mind that the costs of everything over the last couple of years have also gone up. And so many households, homeowners or not, are more stretched than ever. And after seeing how maybe some friends and family got onto the housing ladder in the last three to five years and talking to people, I'm hearing more people talking about regret of getting in and just the sheer number of bills and maintenance costs and property tax and all these things that they weren't necessarily prepared for on top of the increased cost of living. And I think, you know, home ownership is losing some luster for the people who are even in the position of, you know, it being a possibility. So is there a window of opportunity opening up? Sure, possibly, but for the vast majority of people, that ship is sailed. There's an entire generation who is going to be shut out of home ownership. Yeah, home ownership, home buying, and timing in the economy is a complicated affair. Because I always think, I always thought we had bought our home at the absolute peak of the market, and <laughs> we were going to be penalized for years. And then the market just continued to grow, like in one single calendar year. Preet, uh, value of home in Toronto went up by 30% after we had bought our house at what we thought was the peak. Yeah, and I was just reading that in cottage country, uh, a friend of mine who's involved with, you know, home affordability issues there, 
put up some statistics where the increase of non-waterfront properties in the Muskokas had increased by something like 200% over mm-hmm. the span of just a couple of years. And basically, we've come to this point where there's a lot of existing homeowners who would not be able to afford buying the home that they're in today had it not been for the fact that they had bought it 10 15 years ago. So it's a real crisis, no doubt about it. So a poll out this morning finds Canadians feel that they're being pressured to tip and pressured to tip more. And I find it kind of intriguing. Of course, you're in the UK. And if you put money down as a tip on a bar after buying a drink, (laughs) they look at you like you're crazy. That's right. And, you know, there's a fixed service charge when you go to restaurants in London. And it's 12.5% in central London. As you get further out, it's 10%. If you get really far out, it's zero. But it's known in advance. There's no haggling. There's no dickering. It's technically optional. You can even ask them to remove it from the from the bill if you feel that the surface was bad. But everyone knows what it is. It's a reasonable amount. It's just a much more civil experience. And I notice it when I come to North America, US or Canada, it feels like you've had this great experience. And then at the end, it's just this injection of feeling uncomfortable with this expectation of giant outsized tips in some cases, some cases warranted, no doubt about it. But it just does feel a little bit more silly here in the UK when it comes to tipping. Thanks for this, Preet. Good to have you this morning. Thank you, John. Preet Banerjee, personal finance commentator.